0: quick warning before we begin. This episode contains some unsettling descriptions of persecution and World War II history. Also, at around the nine-minute mark, I talk about the death of a child, the details of which may be traumatic for some listeners. So, discretion is advised. As much as we've talked about rescue in this series, I haven't actually talked much about the number of people rescued by Le Chambon and the wider plateau, But in the opening episode, I did mention a specific number. How about I jog your memory?
1: We also remember the number 5,000. The number of Jews rescued by the villagers of Le Chambon, France.
0: In case you couldn't tell, that's President Barack Obama speaking. It was 2009 on Holocaust Remembrance Day, at a moment when he was giving the story of Le Chambon its highest profile mention ever. There was just one problem, though. Much of what he said wasn't exactly accurate.
2: We believe today that there were probably 3,500 Jews and 1,500 other people.
0: That's author and Holocaust scholar Patrick Henry. And what he's saying is that the number 5,000 is actually a better approximation of the total number of people saved by the plateau. Not just Jews, but all other refugees and enemies of the Nazis. Unfortunately, however, that distinction isn't the only thing Obama got wrong. He also said the number 5,000 represented One life saved for each of its 5,000 residents. But there weren't 5,000 people in Le Chambon.
2: There were only 2,500 people living in Le Chambon. So it would be impossible for them to rescue twice their population, right?
0: It's also important to remember that Le Chambon wasn't the only village involved in the rescue operation. There were 12 other nearby villages giving the plateau a total population of about 24,000. So why did Obama get it all so wrong? Well, he can't entirely be blamed.
2: You see, when the first figures came out about Le Chambon, they said, well, 5,000 people saved 5,000 Jews. Okay.
0: The they Patrick is talking about is actually a man named Oscar Rozowski, and he said it in the 1989 documentary Weapons of the Spirit, a great film and still the only feature-length documentary about Le Chambon. But by saying it in such an early definitive source, the notion that 5,000 people saved 5,000 Jews kind of stuck, even though Rozowski later revised his estimate to essentially support what most accept as accurate today. 3,500 Jews and 1,500 other people. So who was this Rozowski person, you might be wondering? And why did he know so much about how many people were saved? Well, for starters, he was one of them. He and his mother fled Germany and made it to Le Chambon when he was in his late teens. More to the point, though, he became the lead document forger on the plateau, which meant he had kept tabs on the number of people passing through who needed false papers. It's just another one of the remarkable threads to this story. Still, beyond the number of people saved, there are bigger questions to answer. Like why? Why were they so successful? Why didn't the Nazis wipe them out, as they did with so many others who defied their will? I'll try to answer those questions and more as we head back to France, back to Le Chambon and the plateau for the final year of the war. From Waging Nonviolence, I'm your host, Brian Farrell, and this is City of Refuge. The Allies continued their advance through France, and by the end of June 1944, things were pretty much in total chaos. Marshal Pétain was still issuing orders from Vichy, but defections were growing. Some gendarmes even joined the resistance, which continued to harass the German troops wherever they could, not realizing how helpless they really were in the face of the massive power of the Nazis. Amusingly, the leader of the Plateau's secret army, Pierre Fayol, actually tried to recruit outspoken pacifist André Trocmé. I refused for reasons of conscience. But André wasn't upset with Fayol for asking. After all, long before becoming a dedicated conscientious objector, he had once been an officer in the French army, albeit one who refused to carry a gun. He remained our friend and
3: often visited with us, and both of us felt our relationship was natural. We both professed a moderate attitude.
0: The pastor and the resistance fighter were also able to agree on one important thing. I felt it was insane to attack German units because it
3: always resulted in bloody reprisals. He agreed with me, and this probably protected Le
0: Chambon from a destiny similar to that of several nearby villages. One of those villages was Le Chailard, which sat in the foothills of the plateau. As retribution for being a center of resistance activity, the Germans decided to strafe it on July 5th, which happened to be market day. So the streets were filled with all its residents. They also sent in two columns of ground troops. The first was miraculously held off by the resistance fighters, but the second pushed through and continued the assault on the already smoldering village. By the time they retreated, it had been totally devastated. There were dozens of dead civilians. Le Chambon may have escaped the fate of towns like Le Chaylard, but it suffered several tragedies of its own during this period. Two of them were the direct result of resistance fighters misplacing their guns. In one case, the 15-year-old daughter of a boarding house operator was accidentally shot and killed by her friend when the two teens found a resistance fighter's pistol and began to play with it. In the other case, a young doctor named Roger Laforestier was arrested by the Germans for being found with guns in his car. They actually belonged to a couple of resistance fighters who unwittingly left them behind after the doctor had kindly, if not unwisely, given them a ride.
4: He was a very adolescent-like fellow, playful fellow.
0: That's Nellie Hewitt, the Trocmé's daughter. She knew La Forestier well because he boarded with her family for a while.
4: And he got all involved in all sorts of things because he, uh, he was a doctor of the underground and he was a village
0: doctor. After his arrest, Le Forestier was brought before a military tribunal, headed by German Major Julius Schmeling.
4: Schmeling, the famous Schmeling.
0: Now, I haven't mentioned him yet, but Schmeling is a pretty important figure in the story of Le Chambon. He actually came on the scene at the end of 1942, when the Germans swept through southern France, dissolving the so-called Free Zone. At that point, he was the Nazi official overseeing the occupying forces in the Haute-Loire region. That means he was in charge while much of the rescue work was taking place. And, knowing that, you have to wonder, what did he think of it? Surely he knew what was going on, so why didn't he mount any serious reprisals? Well, we'll get into that later, but for now, suffice it to say, Schmeling was no hardline Nazi ideologue. He was a 60-year-old former schoolteacher and army reservist, who actually opposed the Nazis for much of the 1930s. That is, until it became impossible to do so without serious repercussions. All this factored into him eventually being demoted to second-in-command after the Allies invaded Normandy. With the sides closing in on them, Nazi leadership wanted their most committed men in charge, and that was not Schmeling. Nevertheless, he was still a powerful man within an absolutely evil and destructive force. When Roger Leforestier came before Schmeling at the military tribunal, his superiors were encouraging him to administer the death penalty but Schmeling decided to listen to the doctor first, as well as meet with his wife and other supporters, including André Trocmé. In the end, Schmeling took pity on the doctor, rendering him a more favorable punishment.
4: And he was told that he would be sent to Germany as a physician.
0: Sadly, however, that's not what ended up happening. On his way to Germany, La Forestier was held in a prison in Lyon.
4: Headed by the, what they call now, the butcher of Lyon, Klaus Barbie.
0: And while there, LaForestier became the victim of a massacre.
4: Bobby took 40 people, packed them in a house mm. or in a barn, I don't know, and he uh, had them shot and then doused with gasoline mm. and burned.
0: It was a terrible ending for a man who had been a dedicated servant to the community and a staunch supporter of André Trocmé's brand of Christian pacifism. But Le Forestier's death was not without meaning, as we'll find out later in the episode. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said about the next tragedy to befall the plateau in the summer of 1944. Unlike the others, it had nothing to do with the violence that was spiraling out of control around them. It was, quite simply, the sudden and accidental death of Magda and André Trocmé's eldest son, 14-year-old Jean-Pierre. One evening, he went to see the performance of a famous old French poem that described men being hung on the gallows. Jean-Pierre was a poet at heart, and the next day, it seems, he decided to act out the poem for himself. He tied a piece of cord around his neck, with the other end attached to some plumbing, high up on the bathroom wall. At some point, Jean-Pierre lost his balance, fell back, and with the noose still in place, broke his neck.
4: It was definitely an accident.
0: That's Nelly again. She was Jean-Pierre's sister, and the oldest of the Trocmé children.
4: My parents were very, very desperate
0: after that. Magda, quite understandably, never wrote or spoke about it, but André did, and it was certainly one of his lowest points.
3: There is nothing positive. I lost my faith, at least my faith in a God who follows me and is supposed to protect me from evil. We are all thrown into an absurd world which is submitted to absurd and chaotic circumstances.
0: While André would have been devastated by the loss of any of his children, Jean-Pierre was particularly special.
4: He was the most gifted and the most philosophical and the most religious.
0: You might remember that he was the one who gave his chocolate to Mr. Steckler, the first person arrested in Le Chambon two summers earlier. He was also the one who could barely contain his anger toward the Nazis during the arrest of his cousin, Danielle.
4: He would have been the follower of my dad because of his intelligence and his sensitivity and his gifts.
0: It was a tremendous loss that Andre and Magda felt for the rest of their lives. World news today. Supreme Allied Headquarters reports that the Americans have begun a general advance
1: on a 30-mile front in France today with terrific support from the Air Command. There was also another heavy bombing of the southern French coast, the kind that in the past has preceded landing operations.
0: Just days after the Allies landed in southern France, on August 15, 1944, German forces stationed near the plateau were forced to start retreating. The resistance slowed their movement to a near standstill by blowing up bridges, blocking roads, and launching some direct attacks. Eventually, the Germans were forced to surrender, which meant the resistance now had over 100 prisoners of war on its hands. They were taken to the
3: outskirts of Le Chambon and put in an old mansion, and because they were in my
0: parish, I automatically became their chaplain. Andre saw this as an opportunity to intervene in a situation that was brimming with feelings of hatred and revenge. There were some who wanted to see the Germans executed. By going to visit them, I helped
3: protect them. But it was obviously not a practice that made me popular. Still,
0: I went. One of the first Germans he spoke with was Major Julius Schmelling, the same Nazi official he had met when advocating for Dr. Roger Laforestier. At this point, neither of them knew that Laforestier had been killed. In fact, Schmelling reassured Andre that the doctor was in Germany, administering to the sick and wounded, and that he would soon return to France when the war was over. As the two men continued talking, Andre offered to lead worship services for the soldiers in German, since, after all, he spoke German fluently. Schmelling agreed, and during the first sermon, André asked one of the prisoners to do a reading.
3: I discovered later that he had been the commander of the military police and was responsible for the arrests of many resistance members. I'm sure he would have been happy to arrest me if he had had the chance.
0: Resistance members were outraged at André for preaching to the Germans, so he decided to drive his point home further by preaching the same sermon to the prisoners as he did to his regular parishioners in Le Chambon. Never had my sermons received
3: such attention. I remember I wrote a sort of catechism, starting with the Ten Commandments and ending with justice, truth, and nonviolence.
0: When he told it to the French,
3: they said, go tell your German friends that. The gospel is a nice theory, but with those guys, brute force is the only thing that matters. You're right, I told them. This afternoon, I'm going to give the exact same sermon to the Germans. They had nothing more to say. Of course, the Germans didn't like the sermon either. We're not the ones you need to tell this to, they objected. Preach to your friends, the communists. They're the ones who have spread the doctrine of violence throughout the world. They claim that the end
0: justifies the means. Germans are honest people, good people, who believe in God. André confronted them about the recent discovery that the Nazis had used gas chambers, but they told him it was just lying war propaganda. The fact is, in times of war, the most
3: horrible crimes are committed by the people on both sides who are the most convinced of their innocence
0: and the unilateral guilt of their adversaries. Of course, for the resistance, the other side wasn't just the Germans. It was the French people who had collaborated with them. People
3: wanted to execute traitors. Anyone who had not helped the resistance fighters or may have denounced them.
0: That's Magda.
3: Just as André had been against the war between the Germans and allies, he was against the partisan battles that were beginning. Three people in Le Chambon received a miniature coffin with a rope in it.
0: By speaking out against these threats of revenge, André helped the village avert more tragedy, tragedy that had become commonplace elsewhere.
3: In the Chambon area, there were no executions, but in other nearby areas, it was terrible.
0: There were probably only a few hundred refugees left on the plateau by September 1944, and there's very little information available as to what happened to them. According to author Peter Gross, many were German, Austrian, and Polish, so there was no possibility of returning to their homes. Most eventually left for Israel, the United States, South America, and other places, where they could forget the past and start a new life. French Jews, on the other hand, were technically able to return to their homes. It's just that those homes had been vandalized, and there was nothing much to return to. Meanwhile, the children on the plateau had it the hardest. News had only recently broken about the existence of Nazi extermination camps. So these children were faced with the possibility that their parents weren't coming back for them. I have just returned from the Belzen
5: concentration camp, where for two hours I drove slowly about the place in a jeep with the chief doctor of Second Army.
0: This is the BBC's Richard Dimbleby reporting from Germany on April 19th, 1945. I passed through the barrier and found myself in the world of a nightmare.
5: Dead bodies, some of them in decay, lay strewn about the road and along the rutted tracks. On each side of the road were brown wooden huts. There were faces at the windows, the bony, emaciated faces of starving women too weak to come outside propping themselves against the glass to see the daylight before they died. And they were dying every
0: hour and every minute. By the end of the month, 9,000 people had died. Liberation simply wasn't enough to save these people. That's how bad conditions had been in Bergen-Belsen, which wasn't even an extermination camp. Still, it ended up claiming the lives of over 50,000 people. Incredibly, the Jewish social worker and rescuer, Madeline Dreyfus, was not one of them. She had spent 11 months in Bergen-Belsen and survived. Living on starvation rations of 600 to 700 calories a day, her experience was one of prolonged hunger.
2: Imagine going through something like that and seeing everybody you know dying and figuring, I'm next.
0: That's Patrick Henry, who has written extensively about Madeleine Dreyfus.
2: She, She not only had letters that her son sent to me, but lectures that she gave at Sorbonne, particularly great stuff about the psychology of deported people. I mean, she was was a really smart person.
0: In one of her writings, she explained just how bad the hunger got. Here is an actor reading what she wrote.
6: The most important thing became finding something to eat and drink. When they brought the food, an excitement occurred that was absolutely comparable to that of animals.
0: At one point, she actually had the opportunity to get some food. By making love to a and she told him to fuck off. But I guess
2: there were always those moments when you get down so low that that's what gets you to get back up again.
0: But what really kept her sane was continuing her efforts to help others. She actually led her fellow prisoners in a daily delousing session to rid them of the vermin that transmitted typhus, one of the biggest killers in the camp and she was the one entrusted to divide up whatever morsels of food they acquired. In one instance, she had to divide a hard-boiled egg into fifteen slices.
6: I still have the taste of that fifteenth of the hard-boiled egg in my mouth.
0: What
2: is testimony to the trust that people had in her?
0: In the years after the war, Madeline would often receive thanks from people who felt she had saved them in the camp, even if only by setting an example of not
6: giving up. I was trying to raise the morale of my companions, one is really defeated only when one willingly surrenders.
0: Madeleine finally returned to France on May 18, 1945, just a couple weeks after the Allies declared victory in Europe. She wrote a rather haunting reflection around this time, juxtaposing life before and after liberation.
6: Spring, 1945. Still trapped behind these sinister barbed wires, under surveillance day and night by these implacable watchtowers, punished, scorned, Dying of hunger, of vermin. Surrounded, gripped more and more tightly by an approaching death. It wasn't spring. And then, spring 1945, we finally found you. We finally met you on our way. We were miraculously transported to France. Spring, you were not an illusion. We had finally found you.
0: It wasn't long after Madeleine reunited with her husband and children that she was back working for the Ose. The Jewish relief organization she had been with during the war. Because after the war, there were thousands of Jewish kids they didn't know what to do with. The OZE had taken in hundreds of children from Buchenwald concentration camp.
2: The children of Buchenwald, they called them, they were orphans of the war.
0: These were children whose parents had not returned or who did not have other family members to claim them. As a trained psychologist, Madeline counseled these severely traumatized children, knowing firsthand what they had gone through. Everything
2: we know about Madeleine is that she was the same person from the time this thing happened until
0: it was all over. For the 27,000 Jewish refugees living in Switzerland, news of the war's end was a similarly grim occasion. The day
5: it was announced, I listened to the speech of King George on the radio.
7: Today, we give thanks Almighty God, for a great deliverance.
5: It was a beautiful sunny day, and here were the Alps, in full sunshine, and I felt totally drained. It was not, hooray, the war is over. We had lost everyone and everything.
0: Hannah had been in Switzerland for a little over two years at this point, and although she was safe, life had been difficult. At first, she lived with her aunt's family in Geneva, but that quickly became unbearable.
5: They had absolutely no understanding of what I had lived through, what I had experienced.
0: They were pretty well insulated by their wealth and distance from all that had been happening in Europe.
5: Here I was, 18 years old, having experienced death many times over. And now I was supposed to live the life of the very nice bourgeois girl impossible.
0: Hannah's aunt would constantly harass her, saying things like, what would your mother say?
5: Well, one day I had enough of what would my mother say, and I said, why don't you leave her alone? She's dead. And this was the one thing, really, that my aunt could not admit and confront, because rightfully she had to feel guilty for the loss of my mother, simply because they had not done enough to get her out of camp.
0: This experience brought Hannah to the brink of a nervous breakdown. So she left her relatives and got a job as a maid. Of course, all this time she had been in touch with her boyfriend, Max. Unlike Hannah, who had arrived in Switzerland as a legal immigrant, Max was a refugee. So he lived in refugee housing hours away from Geneva and worked in a labor camp. But it wasn't as bad as it sounds.
5: These were not slave labor camps. They lived like all the military did. There was never a fence. There was never anyone to say you cannot, you know, leave the house. Yeah, they had to do their work for certain hours and then they could do what they wanted.
0: At one point, Max was able to take some social service classes in Geneva. I had no profession,
3: basically. So when the opportunity came to take some courses in social service, I took the opportunity. Incidentally, we also got married.
5: It was the 14th of April, 1945
0: just weeks before the end of the war.
3: When the war was over, that was very simple. We had nowhere to go.
5: And while the Swiss did take us in, there was always this undercurrent of resentment. We were always considered the dirty refugees.
0: Even though Hannah was a legal immigrant, her status had no bearing on Max, so she was forced to join him in the refugee housing. A year later, they welcomed a daughter into the world, which only complicated matters more.
5: What should the child be? Refugee or immigrant? The Swiss government had a very great dilemma.
0: Children born in Switzerland were not granted birthright citizenship. And after much deliberation, the Swiss decided the Liebmanns' daughter should be considered a refugee.
5: Does it tell you how people were harassed?
0: Ultimately, the Liebmanns were all but forced out of the country.
3: I had a cousin in Switzerland who would have loved to have me in his factory. But we ran into so much trouble with this that we decided it's not worth to pursue.
5: And I said, forget it, we go to America. I had family here, and so we came here in March of 1948. The first day in in this country was our daughter's second birthday.
1: We
0: came here with $90 and we were three people. With help from a rabbi on the Upper West Side and the Jewish relief organization HIAS, they eventually settled into a decent life in New York City. Peter Feigl arrived in New York almost two years earlier, in July of 1946. He was 17 by this point.
7: Well, coming to New York, it was very exciting to see the Statue of Liberty. And coming into the port and into the harbor, and my uncle, my aunt, and my grandmother uh, waited to to dock for me.
0: While in Switzerland, Peter had been looked after by a family who had known his father through business.
7: Uh, They sent me to high school. I was undisciplined at the time, created problems in school, was disruptive. After a year, the school wanted to get rid of me.
0: And so did the family that was caring for him.
7: They had had enough of me, so I was turned over to
0: the Swiss Red Cross. He bounced around to a few other homes and schools until the Red Cross managed to locate his family in America. Once in New York, his rebelliousness continued.
7: My relatives said, I have to go to school.
0: But first, he had to pass a test covering years of American history and English, which he had never studied
7: was absolutely out of the question. I mean, I knew nothing about American history. (laughs) And uh, my English was uh, atrocious. I I couldn't have passed a two-year English uh, test at that point.
0: So then his family tried to get him to learn a mechanical trade.
7: I didn't want that either. I wanted to have my own money and uh, buy things, uh, meet girls, take them out, or what have you.
0: This period of rebelliousness ultimately came to an end when Peter joined the Air Force the following year. It no doubt gave him the first real stability he had had in years, since he had been separated from his parents five years earlier, never to see them again.
7: Through the International Red Cross, uh, I had learned back in the late 40s that they were transported from Nancy to Auschwitz and were immediately gassed.
0: None of Hannah and Max's parents survived either, they were all killed in Auschwitz. But Max's parents at least lived long enough to know he had made it to Switzerland. Rene Kahn had the rare and fortunate experience of surviving the war with her immediate family intact.
8: As soon as the war was over, we went back to France, which is what I really wanted.
0: Life actually hadn't been so bad in Switzerland, at least for Renee's family. They had managed to avoid being placed in a refugee camp.
8: Miracle of miracles, really. My sister and I um, came down with with the most virulent case of yellow jaundice, hepatitis. You know, so very, very contagious.
0: So they were placed in a children's hospital for nearly two months under the care of a very sympathetic pediatrician.
8: He probably kept us there longer than necessary, knowing the situation.
0: This allowed Renee's parents to rent a nearby apartment, something refugees weren't normally allowed to do. Just as fortunately, this apartment was in a community that had formed a sort of welfare organization that provided food and clothing and other kinds of help to Renee's family. They otherwise wouldn't have been able to survive because Switzerland didn't permit refugees to take jobs.
8: We had a lot of really
0: kind help. But once they could return to France, Renée and her family did, and they went to the same town where they had been living before the war, on the border of Germany.
8: The town, of course, had been totally demolished. Our apartment uh, had been ransacked. Uh, You know, the the Germans had occupied it, just taken all the furniture, either Mm. sold it or taken it with them, or destroyed it.
0: Moreover, the town was pretty empty. Many people just didn't return.
8: After the second Passover, My little sister said, you know, why can't we have family like everybody else at our SEDA? And of course, by that time, it had become evident to us that the only family we had was the family that had emigrated to the United States prior to the war or to Brazil.
0: So once Renee finished school that spring, her family decided to make the move to the United States. It was July 1947.
8: I was very unhappy for quite a while until my first year of college when I met my husband. That was a totally unexpected event and it just totally changed my whole attitude towards being in this country. He was a a soulmate.
0: When the war came to an official end in August 1945 and all the remaining refugees and displaced people left the plateau, it must have felt quite surreal for André Trocmé. Trying to make sense of that time years later, he described it as a moment of clarity. Strangely, the war had
3: brought us something we had been missing. By trying to save a few lives, we had finally reconciled
0: the dream and the reality. This dream André was referring to was the Christian dream, which to him meant a sort of dissolving of the ego by putting others before yourself. The truth of God is in the other,
3: the other human being, the Jewish person we are hiding, taking some of the risk ourselves in his place.
0: This was something he had understood on an intellectual level, but was now truly feeling. People became so precious to me, especially my children, my wife to whom
3: I became attached with an immense respect.
0: They had just been through the most difficult and productive years of their lives, and had only grown closer and more firm in their beliefs, particularly toward nonviolence. So, it's only natural that they began looking for ways to carry that work forward in a world that badly needed healing. When they were asked to lead the French branch of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, André and Magda jumped at the opportunity. Although it meant splitting their time between Le Chambon and Paris, they were up for the task as it meant forwarding the important work of post-war reconciliation. In 1947, they went to Germany where, over the course of a month, they traveled to 35 war-ravaged cities. The destruction was overwhelming, but so was the lack of progress.
3: It takes a few weeks in Germany and a few contacts with people of goodwill on one side or the other to become deeply discouraged. Sympathy for
0: democracy
3: is collapsing from one week to the next.
0: Hunger and ignorance were two of the main issues, and the Allies weren't doing enough on either front to win over the hearts and minds of the German people, who were still largely under the sway of Nazi propaganda.
3: Aside from the success of a few cultural initiatives, the Allies' re-education efforts have failed. The only thing that would work would be to be able to invite hundreds of Germans to England, America, and France, to put them in contact with good people in the West who could show them what is possible. You see, this is what it is like when you live somewhere else. And we are not
0: any unhappier than you are at home." What Andre was describing is more or less the work of reconciliation, something he firmly believed happened when people met with one another face to face. So it shouldn't be surprising that he sought out some of the Nazi POWs he had once preached to. One of them was the prisoner he had asked to do a reading, former captain of the military police near the plateau. This man, as it turned out, had become a conscientious objector, a member of the German Fellowship of Reconciliation. But what about Major Julius Schmeling, the official who could have made Le Chambon suffer the full force of Nazi wrath, but didn't? Well, André eventually sought him out too, and the meeting would prove to be a decisive one for André. Incredibly, there's actually audio of him telling the story. It's from that same short film made in the 1950s that I featured in the very first episode, a film that might be the only recording of André talking about the rescue in Le Chambon. He begins by setting the stakes.
1: You must imagine that this man, Major Schmeling, in 1942 or 43, if he had caught me, would have seen as his duty to have me shot by the firing squad.
0: Now, incredibly, André was the one seeking him out.
1: And while I asked him, Major Schmeling, could you tell me why you and your troops did not destroy the little town of Chambon-sur-Lignon where I was living, as uh, some other German troops destroyed some other French places where resistance against the German regime was led, he answered, sir, one day our people caught as a prisoner one of the members of your church. Dr. Le Forestier.
0: This is the man I mentioned earlier, who was later killed in a massacre. He
1: was beaten by the Gestapo. He was badly treated. He came before me, before the military court. I was presiding with a swollen face. And uh, while I asked him why he was resisting the orders of uh, Hitler, he answered, Sir, I am a Christian. And we are... Hiding and defending the Jews against you with non-violent methods. Because we believe that it is wrong for you to kill the Jews. And at once, said Major Schmeling, I was convinced of the sincerity of that man.
0: In other words, Schmeling had come to understand the true spirit of Le Chambon. In fact, according to André, who elaborated a bit more on this story in his memoirs, Schmeling said he saw the resistance as, quote, nothing to do with anything we could destroy with violence. And that actually made him want to defend the village from any kind of Nazi reprisal. Later on, when
1: said Major Schmeling, we discussed in our staff if we should not undertake a repression and a killing party against your town, I always opposed any kind of violence because I knew that your inspiration was Christian.
0: Again, in the long version of this story, the Major told André that his advocacy for the village, quote, "'cost me much professionally and personally.'" Still, André couldn't help but wonder why the Major, who apparently had enough clout with his Nazi peers to protect Le Chambon, couldn't stop them from killing Dr. Le Forestier. So he asked him, point blank, and the Major immediately began to cry. He apparently didn't know that Le Forestier had been killed— and he began to explain that he had done everything he could to save the doctor. And it's true, commuting his death sentence and arranging for him to work in Germany instead of being imprisoned was no small thing. In general, the Nazis didn't equate skilled labor with punishment, nor were they apt to let a suspected criminal treat their soldiers. And this may be why La Forestier was killed. According to Schmeling, the likeliest explanation for what happened is that someone in the Gestapo attended Le Forestier's hearing and angrily decided to arrange their own form of justice. At this point in their conversation, André could see Schmeling was still deeply troubled to learn what had happened. So, he tried to console the Major by offering him a view of the bigger picture.
1: Roger de Forestier has died and in his death has saved thousands of Jews. And true refugees and people who didn't want to destroy your government.
0: For Andre, this was the takeaway. Roger Laforestier may have died tragically, but his testimony before Schmelling ultimately empowered the major to save thousands of lives. Whether Schmelling saw it this way, we can't know. Perhaps it's hard to imagine that any Nazi would ever find solace in the fact that they had saved Jewish lives. But we do know that under his watch, the Haute-Loire region arrested and deported far fewer Jews than the rest of France, 13% compared to 22% nationally. Even the famed Nazi hunter Serge Klarsfeld has spoken in favor of Schmelling, saying that he and his mother hid in the Haute-Loire region specifically because they heard, quote, the German commander isn't interested in Jews. In general, it was this reputation that spared Schmeling execution in post-war trials administered by members of the French resistance. It was also why Schmeling felt he could return to France, to the region he once occupied, in the name of the Nazis, and actually feel welcomed. In fact, some 20 years after the war, the locals presented him with a letter thanking him for easing the strain of war, quote, "...within the limits of the freedom that you were granted, at a time when it was not easy to be a good German." None of this, of course, is to say that Schmeling should be considered a hero. It is more simply a suggestion that perhaps the goodness in Le Chambon brought out the best in a deeply compromised man, and that even something that seemingly trivial can save many, many lives. On the next episode...
8: So I said to my husband, you know... There is a film being made about a town where I think I might have spent some time. And he went with me and uh, we sit through this film, you know, wonderful film showing these extraordinary people. And then uh, Pierre Sauvage uh, speaks to a Madame Dreyfus and uh, he said to her, I understand you kept a little notebook. Where she opens this notebook on the screen. And I let out a scream. I have never in my life screamed like that. Here I saw my sister's name and my name. That's when I first reconnected. And it's the first time that I realized that you know I had not been part of something shameful, but a part of something extraordinarily beautiful.
0: City of Refuge was written, edited, and produced by me, Brian Farrell. Magda and Andre Chokme are performed by Ava Isenson and Brian McCarthy. Madeline Dreyfus was performed by Jasmine Faustino. Our theme music and other original songs are by Will Travers. We also heard music by Audionautix, Wall Matthews, Chris Zabriskie, and Kevin McLeod. This episode was mixed by David Tadashore. Special thanks to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum for the interviews of Hannah Liebman, Max Liebman, and Peter Feigl that were used in this episode. For more information, please go to our website, wagingnonviolence.org. There, you'll find a transcript, photos, a list of our sources, music used, and much more.